The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No, my hockey mai ki Fold, e mihi ne ko Duncan Grieve talking My guest today is uh, Tom Sainsbury, and he man, how do you describe? Who Tom Sainsbury is. I mean, for starters, you all know him. Like, he's probably one of the most uh, sort of interesting and uh, prolific and acclaimed creative people working in New Zealand today. And, uh, you know, part of the reason that he's so sort of interesting and compelling as a person is because of just the the diversity of the creative pursuits that he's turned his hand to. Now, he... he um, he started life as a theatre kid, not not a kind of classic in a city one, but a, you know, actually a, a country boy who was in the the sort of operatic society and matamata. Uh, but but then spent probably the first decade of his kind of working creative life largely in theatre, and then used that as a foundation to sort of explode across. You know, I don't even know how many mediums you couldn't count. You know, over the past. 10, 12 years, he's made television comedies, he's made panel, he's been part of panel shows, he's been a writer, he's been a performer, he's done stand-up comedy hours, he's done comic plays that were part of the comedy festival, he's done fictional podcasts, uh, there's, and I'm, I'm surely missing a huge amount along the way there, and that ultimately has led up to the the thing that we're here to talk about and we spend some time on, which is Loop Track. It's his debut feature film, uh, not that he hasn't been in films before, but it's his debut film as a writer, director and uh, lead actor, which is a lot. It's a it's a horror, but a sort of not a not a kind of jump scare type horror, even though it has a couple in there. It's it's more a sort of a, a slow burn psychological terror uh, that is made for, I think, I'm assuming, a very low budget, but it doesn't feel that way. They've sort of artfully kind of worked around that and it, it feels like it's made with a, a lot of love and a lot of excitement that a group of people are getting to do something without having to ask permission from too many people and it feels different as a result. Uh, it's called Loop Track. It's in, it's in cinemas now. But our conversation is, is a lot broader than that. It, it starts with his kind of creative origins and and works through the different inflection points of his career. But really, it tries to tease out how one person can lead what looks like a very fulfilled creative life while also roaming in all these areas and what the, the sort of, as he's come into these different disciplines, how people have responded to that and how he keeps a sense of creative self while also kind of uh, being all over the map. And not done, by the way. You know, he talks in this interview about how he loved to make music and, and is, is interested in, in fine art as well. So, and I would be shocked if, you know, if we were to do this in 10 years' time, if he hadn't sort of done two or three things that that uh, aren't thought of there. Uh, we also talk 
about his his sort of Snapchat vertical video characters, which on some level, I'm sure that there are people in theatre or television who view that as sort of, you know, the enemy or beneath him somehow. But he talks in a very, I think, uh, persuasive way about the function that they perform for him creatively and just what an audience they bring in. In general, I think if you were trying to find a person who is the sort of epitome of and and a marker for how a, a modern creative should operate in this this world that is very much in flux you you couldn't really do better than Tom Sainsbury doesn't mean that anyone else could do it he has this obviously this very specific bag of talents that allow him to operate in this way but uh you know he's he's very open and generous with uh, with you know in this conversation uh, with, with explaining uh, how he does it all and what it means. So yeah, really enjoyed this. This is Tom Sainsbury. You know, insert whatever your favourite Tom Sainsbury thing is here on the fold. Denakwe Tom, and welcome to the fold. <gasps> Thanks for having me. Um, it's oh, it's it's so cool to, to to have you on, and it's funny. I had this opening question prepped about the basically about how you, how you dress, yes, and 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 I was assuming I that you wouldn't this. be dressed this way, but you are dressed this way. Yeah. Wearing basically a bush shirt and yeah. and uh, sort of like not hiking boots but uh i dressed in theme yeah because i'm talking about my film that's said in tramping speaking of which can i like i know this is really early but can i give you a gift yeah yeah <laughs> yes you can is that all right maybe you can munch on it during the um this is this is outstanding this is i don't think it has ever happened to me before on so this podcast there's just a little bit of trail there's a oh bit my of scrogan yeah this is so great. Yeah, you, there you we really go. are a thoughtful, uh, thoughtful individual. I'm keeping with the theme. But anyway, it's funny that you should say that because this is also how I, this is very similar to how I dress normally. That's the thing. So when we were working on the spin-off mm. TV, a, mm. a career highlight of, of yours and yes. mine, and, um, you know, you would show up dressed the way you are now and the way that you, you are in Loop Track, which we'll talk about later on. And I always assumed that it was some kind of really cute affectation. And then you know, when I was prepping for this, no, this man is from Matamata. He's he's a country boy. Do you, do you want to just talk about your, your, that that sort of the isolation and this very atypical for the the sort of theatre and comedy scenes that you're in, uh, growing up experience that you had? I love that this is the beginner. Can I just say, well done, and just on my clothes, like it's comfort. Comfort first. It and looks shorts, outstanding. And having, my, having my legs out is just necessary. So the question is the kind of atypical, the kind of version of me being growing up on a farm versus becoming going into the arts and becoming very urban. And someone would look at me and go, "This guy only lives in Central City." Yeah, like he's never seen a <laughs> patch of dirt and would recoil at the sight of one. Absolutely, I think that. Um, yeah, so I had a very kind of, I guess you could say, traditional farming childhood. So you know, I I learned how to. I was driving tractors at like seven, eight. So my dad could feed it because someone had to steer while my dad fed out the hay behind. behind. And so that was kind of terrifying, but also like learned straight away. And um, also like looking after animals and all that kind of stuff. I think where the kind of um, urbane kind of vibe came from would probably be my mother being an English teacher and kind of... Um, she do, they 
not so much my dad, but my mum would take me to really interesting films. Like I did watch Schindler's List when I was 11 and, um, you know, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert and Heavenly Creatures and stuff, which have quite adult themes. And then she kind of took them, took me along to them to enjoy them. And so I think that's probably the influence. So my dad was the one in the in the red band gumboots and I was on the back of the truck feeding out and my mum would take me to these movies and get me to read books. Do, do you feel like that that sort of... Like, how much do you think that that experience of culture in an environment mm. which is stereotypically not necessarily hostile to it, but certainly doesn't have it as high in the hierarchy of of needs as as you might have in the city? How much do you think that sort of informed your creative growth as as a practitioner? I think artistically it really informed me, obviously meeting all these people, like I think I can just draw on the characterisation of the kind of rural New Zealander like so quickly and I can really understand that life and that world and that character. In terms of like the dichotomy between, um, uh, yes, obviously kind of like living off the land and things versus artistic life, I think I was very blessed in the sense that I grew up in Matamata where there was a very thriving um, amateur dramatic scene. And so it was there, you were aware of theatre and it wasn't, uh, maybe some of the boys at school um, might have like mocked it, but like in terms of my parents and stuff, they were very, very encouraging of it. And there was also a great theatre um, department in my school as well that really encouraged me too. So there was never a time where I was like, I don't have anywhere to sit. Um, oh, that, that's that's great. Love that. So, so <laughs> when you moved to Auckland to, to study, mm. did you... Did, did that having that background, having and being nourished and held in these places where where theatre was valued, mm. did that mean that you kind of had an easy access to that world, or was it still was there still a sense of kind of a, a step up or, or or a scene that you were outside looking at? Hundred percent. So I, when I was seventeen, I auditioned for Uni Tech Drama School, and my soul still cringed like I didn't get in. And my soul still cringes thinking about the choices I made in that audition. What kind of choices? Like arguing with the person who was doing the auditions, like about the acoustics of the hall would have been the downside. But also like I had to do a, um, we had to do an improvised scene where it had to be revealed that someone was a killer. And I, for some reason, I decided to come hot and hard and just admit I was the killer straight away, which lost any kind of dramatic tension. (laughs) I walked out of it and I was just... But then I was like still holding out hope, but then I got the rejection letter. So that was the end of that. And then I moved up to Auckland and I hung out with all the actors, the young actors that were kind of doing stuff, but I was kind of um, never involved in the ATC or the silo shows or anything like that. I was kind of always hovering on the outside going, oh, love those those people are so cool. I want to be involved. How do you think that that sort of sense of being somewhat outside of that circle impacted you or drove you forward? Because it feels like if there's one kind of... Uh, really striking element to your career. It is you're, you've been insanely prolific and driven in, in every aspect of what you've done, but particularly through that 2000s when a lot of people are just sort of getting drunk and loafing and traveling, you were just honing your craft in a kind of semi-psychotic way. Um, yeah, um, emphasis on semi-psychotic, I think. I think it's just a desperate... Um, I agree with everything you're saying. What kind of motivated me then would be a desperation to be, to make something important. Like, it was such a focus for me from a really young age and like growing up watching movies and stuff, I'm like, this is what I want to do. Going to theatre shows, this is what I want to do. So I think the hunger was always there. Also, in terms of partying, like I'm such a cheap 
date, Duncan. I just take it takes two wines and I'm any ones and I'm wasted and home. And then I have a hangover at eleven o'clock that night and then you know, then it's bedtime. So I'm not much of a partier. Do you did you feel like during that period like theatre was where you were going to be and stay? For forever, or did you always have half an eye and mind on these other sort of parallel uh, careers? It's really interesting, like looking back now over you know twenty years ago. This, like at the time, yes, it was. I wanted to be a playwright. I just wanted to be a playwright. That's what I was kind of focusing on, loving you know Harold Pinter and Shakespeare and things like that. And that's all I kind of wanted to do. Um, but there was, and also the fact that I didn't want to act. I was like, I just want to write plays for actors to do, and. It, that was all false. It wasn't the truth of who I was. Like movies has always been um, such a big part of what I've wanted to do and to admit that took decades. Well, why do you think that was? Okay. Um, so when I started, moved up to Auckland, I started hanging out with all these young actors that were doing kind of like really um, earnest acting work. You know, they loved Robert De Niro and Taxi Driver and they would do those monologues and things like that. And... And they would draw a lot on their own experience and they love kind of like playing drug lords and things like that. And I thought that was the what you had to do to be an actor, right? Draw on yourself and also be able to play these like really um, gritty young male roles. And it wasn't until I started hanging out with people like Morgana O'Reilly and Madeline Sami and Jackie Van Beek where I kind of, kind of saw a, you could, there's two kind of actors. There's the real serious, the serious earnest ones and then there's the clowns. And it took me a good 10 years to work out that being a clown is just as uh, legitimate as the serious acting. And so because I thought it was only serious acting, I thought this isn't for me, this doesn't sit right, so I can't do it. Right. When you met the clowns and realised that that is in fact who you were, yes. like what did, what, what's the process whereby you sort of start to realise you're not in fact a playwright and, and in fact that there is, you're going to start to glimpse this much more kind of diverse and potted career that you've built in the in the next decade. What what was that process? Yeah, like like how, how did was was it a realization? Was it a, a process of trial and error? Like mm-hmm. it just feels like there was, there's quite an inflection point there around sort of super city time when yes. suddenly things start to really kind of get a bit more like there's still a real career building to it, but but you just you move to different paths. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And in hindsight, you are aware of it. But in the time when you're in it, you're like, I'm just kind of like following what kind of feels interesting and stuff and taking the next job and things. And obviously, the ones that you more align with or feel more natural is the one that, that kind of work that lead on to next the next job. But I do think working with Super City and Madeline playing all these characters was definitely like a, wow, that's such a... Um, possibility for me and she was so kind of encouraging of my own kind of performance because I wasn't kind of performing before that and she got me to be in some of this um to be a character in it and also um we would workshop characters her characters and I would kind of be the one to bounce off playing different characters as well so I think let's let's give it all to Madeline Sami. How important was Super City to your kind of creative development do you think? It kind of it was during a proliferation of comedy that was made by TV3 at the time. And it was really good to have that rigorous um, 
You know, because I would do plays and then you'd kind of workshop it in the rehearsal and you work out the best way to do it. But this would be like you'd write a script and then you'd just get the most intense, harsh notes that you kind of had to kind of work all night to kind of fix. So it was kind of like, um, you know, hammering the metal iron like a blacksmith kind of thing. So I think that was uh, the the hard work of screenwriting was, was where I learned. That's where I learned it. And also just hanging out with people like Madeline, like like Oscar Gartley, like um, Taika, like Carthew Neal, just was great as well. Do you, we're, we're recording this at the, the end of October mm. uh, 2023 at this point where, you know, it's less than a week ago that the project was announced as uh, being, uh, up for being cancelled, a place that has actually played an under, underrated role in the working lives of of comedians at various times, the whole industry has a bit of a, a sense of gloom around it. And certainly that sense of kind of craft and and opportunity that was contained in television just doesn't feel like it's there in the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, as someone who has really, you know, it feels like you pay attention to the form and want to execute it in this very, you know, in, in a way that, puts it next to or, or evolves from these, these sort of traditions within it. How much attention do you pay to the kind of health of the industry? Does, does mm. it sort of bother you that it's not looking all that well? Again, good question. I mean, obviously, do you do this for a career? <laughs> I think the gloom would have, doom and gloom would have got me more, affected me more. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to focus that, the fact that I've got jobs and I've got work for the next um, few months, I'm just like, you know, I can focus on that because then can, there can be a swing around and things can kind of improve. I think for me, I'm never really affected by the industry, say, because I'm so used to self-generating work. And for the last 20 years, I've kind of been putting on plays and focusing on my own stuff. So in terms of how the industry is, um, I'm, not reliant, I'm not reliant on it. And I just feel, you know, you can, I can always go back to my thespian ways and I can travel to travel the country as a... Um, you know, as a vaudeville act and make my pennies and get fed pheasant. <laughs> so, I mean, because the, the interesting thing, I mean, one of the most interesting things ab- about you is the fact that you have that that strand of, of a very much a, a knowledge of and a participation in the kind of history of these these related disciplines. But you also were early and kind of committed to the new possibilities of social, you know, you the the Snapchat dude type thing. Did you ever feel feel a, a tension there, or did you always sort of just enjoy the creative possibilities of these different mediums? I always just enjoyed the creative possibility. Um, I do like working for other people, but the autonomy that I got with doing the Snapchat and stuff like that, and that this it's it's I was ready to do it, and I was just psychologically I was ready to do it and I was just waiting for the technology to kind of come and, and arrive and give it to me. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, what was the question? Oh, was, uh, you, you've answered it. <laughs> I mean, uh, like, 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 I'd just love you to to, to talk about what, mm. what role the, the Snapchat, um, I mean, obviously it's mm. not actually Snapchat as a primary platform anymore, but that, that those, those characters that you play and mm. the, the sort of, you know, what that medium uh, does for you. It is, I owe so much to it. I think like psychologically being able to achieve a little artwork and create something every day just like really satisfies me and kind of feeds my ego and also gives me a dopamine hit and all that kind of stuff. And it kind of, 
um, makes me always feel like I'm kind of moving forward, which seems to be important to me. And um, also that I've got complete control of it is also so good for me too. And But I owe everything to it. Like it's just opened a career for me. People know who I am. People come to see my other things because they know me from doing social media videos. Do do, you, do they like what they see? Is there any ever yeah. any kind of <laughs> dissonance between what how you work there and and what what you're doing elsewhere? Yeah, very good question. Um, I think, and it's 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 a trap you can definitely fall into. It's like, what do these people expect of me, and how can I deliver on that, or just kind of move that forward, or do I just kind of take a complete um, left turn and give them something new? I. Definitely have done shows, especially early on, because I had this character called Gingerbread, who was this orange cat that everyone loved, and I, people only wanted that from me. And then, like, inviting them to a live show, and then they'll come up afterwards and not mention the show at all and just say that they love Gingerbread, and that's all they kind of essentially wanted. And so there is that pressure. It does exist, and it is a work in progress to try and not let that affect me too much. In terms of that, that evolution, you know, out of writing into... Uh, acting and, and being a comic actor, you, you've also kind of jumped one one over into actually doing like stand-up comedy. Do you feel like your current scope, which now includes director, writer of feature films, uh, like is, is finished or do you think this kind of more, this roving career is actually the sort of definitive version of who you are and you're not having a fixed kind of identity is, is part of your kind of creative sense of self? I love you and I love your questions. <laughs> I think it's still roving. I think it's just a yearn to, even though I've got no skills in it, Duncan, music is makes my heart sing and it always has. And it's like, I just need to, to satisfy, I need to make some sort of music, I need to create music. That has to happen. Um, also fine art like I just love going like it's all kind of artistic storytelling kind of things it's all in that realm but uh, I want to pursue those as well Are you uh, animation I love animation so all these things are sort of on a kind of a grand mental to-do list but which is terrible like you know what is it you know something of master of none because a lot of people would feel not necessarily kind of, uh, you know, like like having that kind of shiftlessness, uh, mm. like it could be, you know, th there, there's a lot of pressure to kind of commit to a particular uh, career or, or approach that you, do you not feel it or is it just kind of irresistible, this, this kind of desire to move between mediums? To be honest, I don't feel like much pressure from, I don't feel that pressure at all. Um, and for me, it's kind of like following with a like I'm just you know attracted to pleasure, avoid pain, and the pleasure that these things bring me, I'm just like attracted to it, you know. And then I go to a gallery, and I'm just so kind of inspired by everything. I'm kind of looking at, going, God, this is genius. Um, you know, inspiration happens all the time in different mediums, so I just kind of follow that. And people telling me what not to do and what to do just doesn't really sit well with me. Does that happen? Not anymore. But there was a time when people in your life mm. would, would look at your decisions and reprimand you for them. Or just kind of make comments on it or something like that, you know. 
Any particular standout? Uh, just a f- television writer saying I should stick to playwriting. But based on the quality of your television writing at the time? Yeah. Can't imagine that went down particularly well. <laughs> I just kind of went, okay. And then I was like, screw <laughs> them. I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to prove them all wrong. <laughs> Um, so another, you know, along with Super City, and I don't know if, like, it's always hard to tell mm. whether a particular part of someone's creative output looms as large for them as it does to, you know, you as a consumer. Um, but camping, for me, that was the first time I sort of saw you in something that kind of felt particularly electrifying to, to me. And I've, I've talked to Chris Parker on this podcast about it, what was that when you were making that? Whether it was writing it, performing it, were you did it? Did it feel special? Or was this just another notch on the bedpost kind of thing? Uh, yeah, good call. I think it was just it felt like just another notch on the bedpost. And even now, with a bit of hindsight, I'm like maybe it was fundamental a little bit. I think it was just the kind of the alchemy of those four performers coming together just was so electric. I don't even really remember if Koo and Chris had worked together before that. Obviously him and Brinley are really good friends and me and Chris are really good friends. So in hindsight, yes, at the time, no. Right. Just another show. Just another show. Has, yeah. it, has, it, has that changed subsequently or is, is it just that I'm obsessed with it? I think you're just obsessed with it <laughs> and I'm here for it. I love it. And also Jacinda Ardern said it was her favourite New Zealand play. Really? Yeah. Oh, I mean, just obviously I've got, I got exquisite taste. Uh, Another similarity you guys have. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right, and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call, or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. Let's start talking about loop track. Hmm. It's like, I mean, so much of your career is, you know, if someone was trying to guess at where it might go, they, they might come up completely empty on every single turn. But I don't think anyone saw a, how do you describe it? Is it's a horror? Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Um, I'm describing it as a slow burn horror. Just, I think that's the best way to kind of pitch it to people because it's not, it's not a slasher or something like that. Like it's just foreboding from three quarters of the film. Yeah, like right the way through it. And it's got this sense of dread, but it's not necessarily located anywhere apart from, you know, the the atmosphere and the, the relationships and, and so on. But a film is like a big undertaking. It's one thing to get up and do a, do a Snapchat or, or write another play or even, you know, there are lots of things that are big undertakings, but film feels like it's it's extra. And that comes down to how it's written finance like the the, finance, the yeah. what it draws from a, a whole bunch of people what where where, where did this come from and what, mm. how did you because you're and you are like you're, you're the star you're the writer director like you're extre- this is extremely your project mm. what well, well, yeah t- tell us about its genesis both creatively and practically yeah so practically 
Yeah, so me and the boys from Chillbox, which is this um, production company that make um, predominantly corporate material, they we kind of came together to do a web series called um, Stakeout back in the day. I don't know, are you spiritual at all? I'm, not, not, not in any kind of formal sense, but every so often you can feel something. <laughs> I feel the, the same. Air. I'm like practically no, and of course I'm not. But then like as soon as I walked into their office and I met the boys, I'm like, there's something, there's something going on here and it's destiny. Um, and then um, shortly after that we did, they asked me to be direct them for the 48-hour film competition. And so we did that in 2016 and we ended up winning the competition by surprise. We weren't prepared for it. I, I'd even left... Like we were at the award ceremonies and I left to go and do snort down at the basement theatre rather than be there at the award ceremony when they called out ours was the winner. And with that, you get a um, you get quite a bit of prize. Uh, you get some prize money and you get a whole lot of kind of um, materials and equipment and things like that, and which is really good for making a really good solid short film. But we were like, no, we're much more interested in making a feature film. So we started kind of developing an idea and then we won it another year and kind of pulled all that money together and... Um, it was really collaborative in the sense that they were constantly giving me feedback on where the story, on the story and the scripts. And um, so we worked on it for three years and then kind of just started making it. It just felt like the next natural progression. And in terms of creatively, where the story kind of came from. So it's set on a tramping, um, on a hike. And I play a character on the verge of a nervous breakdown who's kind of, for some reason, is going on this walk. And he meets these other um, trampers. But because they're so isolated... And he's kind of going through a kind of a breakdown. His mind starts kind of ticking everything over and he becomes paranoid and it just kind of, um, his paranoia kind of erupts into something, into a, th- a thrilling climax, I guess you could say. And that, the genesis for that um, was, one, my own life and the only way I deal with problems, as we well know. And also <laughs> um, uh, my absolute love of horror and thriller and stuff like that. So that's where that began. And what's interesting about it is like you describe its uh, practical genesis in a way that's very sort of, you know, you just went out and did it. Whereas, you know, a lot of people in the film community, they're relying on, they might have a, a bunch of ideas they're desperate to do, but there's a, they can't, for whatever reason, largely financial, just go out and do it. Uh, I just, you know what? What? And you know, I, I watch the the full credits of the of the film, and there's a shitload of people. Bless on, your heart. Uh, <laughs> there's a boosted. Yes. There's uh, you know, there's a little bit of finishing money from the film commission. You got it. But you know, it, this feels like it's something where you have sort of said the the permission process is too arduous with this project, and I'm we're going to just figure it out ourselves. Why did you? take that direct that path i think um uh first of all we wanted to kind of take the pressure off of having film commission and trying to achieve that kind of um getting the money and being um, answerable to someone else we kind of wanted, didn't want to have that pressure for our first film we also wanted to kind of prove that we could do it without being beholden to anyone um and uh and also the fact that like we're hoping that the next film will be much more um uh, heavily involved with the film commission so we just don't want to blow our load or kind of ruin our relationship with them or you know have a bad film with them on board so that's where that kind of came from do you do you feel like you know you, you i assume that you're 
It's almost like a sort of funding version of an EGOT. Like, I assume that you've worked with Creative New Zealand, New Zealand On Air and, and the Film Commission, a relatively rare... EGOT, trailer. yes. I love this. <laughs> do, do In you, creative communities, let's give the fourth one. <laughs> See, I, I'm not even aware of uh, of that, of something that, you know, that that's that in that realm. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, do you feel like as someone who has a probably a fairly specific, near unique view into how things are kind of funded, commissioned, made, the the various stakeholders who have to be have to grant permission for something to exist. Do you mm. feel like it's it's working well or is it just working well for you? Like what's what's the state of it all? I think it's working like it's you have to have too many people to get you uh, there's got to be so many projects for one or two to kind of come forth to be good. You can't kind of set there's only a limited market. There's only so much money, government money that they can kind of put into a project. So I think I think it is working well. I think it's like it's not going to be make anyone happy. I don't the, think any of these are going to make anyone happy. So just like kind of try and work within the realms of what they are. That's quite interesting. I've never heard a creative person say that. Even though New Zealand probably has in some ways, has quite a lot of government support for mm. different aspects of the arts, mm. but we only know the environment we're in, you know. Absolutely. But there's also like a part of me that um, I think kind of training up and like putting on these shows and like galleries and stuff like that where, you know, it, it lives or dies by the amount of people coming to a show. Like I'm a, we, a part of me is like it has to be financially viable. I do think that. I'm, I guess I'm a libertarian in a sense. Do do you is that something that you you know have you do you do you talk about this stuff with with your fellow creatives because the they at times you can hear people who are almost hostile to the idea that popularity should be a measuring stick at all for uh, some of this output and you know which you know I I might also have <laughs> an issue with what side are you on. Oh, I think that you it has to have an audience, mm. you know, and particularly in an environment where they're really like, what what are the other measuring sticks? You know, there there really isn't much of a critical community anymore. So the only sort of like for like data you can get is like, did did people come along and see this thing or watch mm -hmm. this thing? You know, hundred percent. I do think that. I also think like you can have really niche things that have lost a lot of money, but they do have a small audience and it's kind of reached the mark artistically. I'm like that. And it and it speaks to a small audience that might not be you know financially. I think there is merit in that as well. And so obviously those projects are losing money, but I'm like I'm I'm glad that they are in existence. And it's also I guess the other way that you can measure these things is did everyone upskill people working on it? Did they upskill? Did they learn? All those things are good too. What did you learn out of making a loop track and and really making it? <laughs> yeah, so much. And we really just uh, me and the editor are just like we're just gagging to work on the next one because we're like we've learned so much. Like watching it, like storytelling, I've learned so much from that. I'm just like audiences get it. Audiences get things. You don't need to labour it. Audiences are much more kind of smart than you kind of than, than you necessarily think. Um, uh, what else did we learn? Um, I learned that the next one I'm not going to be acting in. That's one one step too far. It was one. Too, it was like I really wanted to play this role. I really wanted kind of to do this creation and stuff. But the next one, I'm like, I'm so kind of glad to just be the boss behind the camera. Is there a like? Do, do you now that you've made a film? Mm. Uh, like, oh, I've got another thing I've learned. Okay, 
just the test screenings, like the more and more test screenings, because obviously um, you and I were like, if there's an audience, and so like if you can kind of get people in to give critique and just be um, take that on board and kind of listen to it, it's just so the more you can do that, the better. So finally, like do, now that you've, this is one medium that you hadn't particularly worked in, certainly not in any kind of a full-throated role uh, like this, and and hearing you talk, the fact that you're not like never again, you're in fact like you're gagging to do the next one. Do do you feel like this is a a place where you can see a substantial part of your career going forward? Yeah, hundred percent. I love that. And and is it going to be like? I think it probably some people who know more of your sort of theatrical background might mm. be surprised that it's a genre film. Mm-hmm. Do, does that feel like the right place for you, or are you going to continue to? to roam as you have done in other aspects of your career I think continue to roam <laughs> amazing well uh, I'll, I'll let you get back to roaming thanks so much for coming up here Tom it's, it's, a, it's a really really fascinating and, and uh, special film you've made and uh, your career is just like it's dazzling it's, it's really fun to watch thanks Andy That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O-Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.